Being as I'm the only uh, clergy person here this morning, you're probably already tired of listening to me talk, but here we go. Friends, this text that we're about to hear is the perfect scripture for a dark and stormy morning. It's one of Jesus's apocalyptic speeches about the trouble that lies ahead. It's part of a larger discourse on Jesus' interpretation of future events, not necessarily in a magical uh, Nostradamus prophetic sort of way, but rather his ability to read the writing on the wall. Uh, Indeed, Jesus could almost be describing our world today being as deeply divided as it is. But Jesus' own world was divided and troubled too. It was a miasma of political and religious factions, the Sadducees and Pharisees vying for power. It was an era of empire and revolt, with some fanatical Jews turning to armed rebellion and even domestic terrorism in their attempts to overthrow Rome. It was a time when parents turned against their children and brothers and sisters turned on one another. And frankly, the advent of Christianity only poured fuel on the fire. As traditional Jews argued with Christ-following Jews about who the Messiah really was. In this text, Jesus says that he has come to bring a sword. Of course, Jesus never picked up a sword or any other weapon, but his words cut deeply into the status quo of his time. His words weren't really compatible with the ways of the world. But as Christians, we have to find a way to do what is right when the ways of the world are often so very wrong. A reading from the Gospel according to Luke. I came to bring fire to the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. I have a baptism with which to be baptized, and what stress I am under until it is completed. Do you think that I have come to bring peace to the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, five in one household will be divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, Mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you immediately say, it is going to rain, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourself what is right? Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Please pray with me. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts 
serve to glorify you, and may they be in keeping always with the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. When I was a boy, I used to love exploring my parents' vinyl record collection. My brother and I could spend a whole evening just pulling stacks of these records off the shelf in our living room, our fingers tracing the vintage photographs and artwork that adorned their covers. Pooled together from both my mother and father, the catalog was diverse. My dad's Pink Floyd records sat nestled alongside Carly Simon, courtesy of my mother. We'd pull the records out of the sleeves and put them on the turntable, lowering the needle to listen to the dulcet tones of James Taylor or Barry Manilow's Copacabana, which we promptly put right back on the shelf. <laughs> but the crown jewel of my parents' music library was an old eight-track player that we found in the attic with a single oversized cassette lodged in its deck. It was a copy of Henry Winkler's Fonzie's Favorites, an album performed entirely in character as the iconic Fonz. There was an amazing track on there called the Fonzarelli Slide, featuring the cast of the television show Welcome Back, Cotter, in which the Fonz drives his motorcycle through a plate glass window and parks in the middle of the annual school dance. Hey, he says, the Fonz parks where the Fonz parks. Now, some might say that Winkler jumped the shark with this album, but my brother and I listened to that song literally until the tape wore out. We just thought it was fantastic. And it saddens me a little that my kids will never experience the joy of rifling through my music collection. Falling somewhere in the gap between Gen X and millennials, they say that I'm part of the last analog generation. And about 10 years ago, I sold most of my CD collection at a local record shop for a pittance. I'm part of the digital infrastructure now, a subscriber of services rather than an owner of property, streaming music and other media on demand from Amazon and Spotify and Netflix. I don't have a box of stuff for my kids to get into, just a bunch of usernames and passwords for digital platforms and services. Today, most of our digital content is locked within its own proprietary ecosystem. I don't really own any music, I just pay for limited access to it. And someday, when I'm dead and gone, unless my kids want to keep paying my subscriptions, all of that stuff will probably be lost. There probably won't be any way to transfer it to whatever it is they'll be using in 30 years because these platforms aren't really designed to work with each other. In the tech world, they call this interoperability, the ability for different kinds of systems and technology to interface with each other. High interoperability allows you to plug a pair of Sony headphones into a phone manufactured by Samsung because it has a standard eight millimeter uh, headphone jack. Or as we attempted at our senior high work camp this past summer when the power went out for a few hours, it allows you to plug a full-size coffee maker into the dashboard of a Chevy Suburban. 
I'm sorry to say it did not work. Interoperability is good for the consumer. It drives competition in the free market, lowering prices and inspiring innovation. But it's not always good for the company that owns the platform for obvious reasons. Take Apple, for instance. If I have to buy the proprietary Apple charger for my iPhone, well, they can charge me whatever they want for it. It's the only game in town. But if a third party enters the market with something comparable, well, now we're negotiating. Now, as a consumer, I have some choice in the matter. And there's a phrase in the tech world for this, too. When a third party competitor markets something that interfaces with a particular platform against the will of the original creator. They call it adversarial interoperability, which is a terrible name for a sermon. <laughs> but while this phrase may sound kind of negative, like a, like a bad thing, it's really not. Adversarial interoperability prevents monopolies by prying open these proprietary ecosystems. Put simply, it drives competition in the open market by allowing different systems to interface with each other, whether the companies who built those systems like it or not. In theory, it might let me plug a Mr. Coffee into a Chevy, even though Chevy would probably rather that I didn't. Now, I know this is all beginning to sound more like a TED talk about the tech economy and less like a sermon about Jesus. But you've probably realized by now that I'm using adversarial interoperability as a metaphor for something else. Namely, how do our Christian values interface with other value systems? Plug into them. Our politics, our economic philosophy, our consumer choices, especially when those systems aren't built with Christian values in mind. Now, we don't tend to think of Jesus as a particularly adversarial person. It's the other guy, the devil, Satan, whose Hebrew name is roughly translated as the adversary. But in this text, Jesus is extremely adversarial. He comes to bring fire to the earth. He comes not to bring peace, but a sword. He comes to divide families in their own house, turning siblings and parents and children against each other, or so he says. It's a hard text to grapple with, but if we read it in the broader context of Jesus' teachings, it's actually pretty consistent with his message. Jesus doesn't bring fire to destroy, but rather to purify and to refine. He doesn't wield a sword to do harm, but there's going to be an inevitable division between his teachings and the ways of the world. And Jesus is well aware of this fact. You see, those teachings, love your enemy, forgive your neighbor, give away your possessions, they don't sync up with the other value systems of the world. They aren't always compatible. They certainly didn't interface very well with Roman ideology, which prized martial strength as one of the highest virtues and taught that peace can only be attained through war. They ran contrary to a lot of ancient Jewish theology, too, which tended to cherish the letter of the law above the spirit of the law. The gospel, by its very nature, is divisive, adversarial, to the cultural status quo of Jesus' time. And if we're being honest, it still is.
We live in a world of competing values that can turn us against each other. Sometimes they can even turn us against ourselves, our personal convictions competing for superiority. That's why a lot of Christians, for instance, can buy into things like the prosperity gospel, even though Christian values aren't particularly capitalist or consumer-driven. They're about sharing what we have. They aren't exploitative or concerned with the financial bottom line above all else. What does it profit a man, Jesus says, if he gains the world but loses his own soul? This competition of values is also why Christians can discriminate against people who aren't like them. But Christian values aren't rooted in politics. In Christ, there is neither east nor west. They aren't racist or homophobic or violent. Love your neighbor, love your enemies, love everyone. But lest we point the finger at those people, those hypocrites, let us remember that none of us is immune to hypocrisy. And sometimes we put other concerns before our Christian convictions. Case in point, there's a story about a man who was concerned for a struggling family and sought out a local pastor and his wife who were known for their generosity. Oh, I'm so glad you could make the time to see me, he told them, his voice trembling. I'm a good Christian man, and I wish to draw your attention to the terrible plight of a poor family in this neighborhood. The father is dead, the mother is too ill to work, and the nine children are starving. They're about to be turned out into the cold, empty streets unless someone pays their rent, which amounts to only $400. That's horrible, the pastor replied. But how do you know this? Who are you? The man raised a handkerchief to his eyes to wipe away a tear. I'm their landlord. I said before that our digital content is locked within its own ecosystem, Apple, Google, Netflix, whatever. And our consumer habits, our economic policies, our our political party of choice, these are also proprietary ecosystems, value systems. Our Christian faith is also one of these value systems, but it doesn't always interface with the other values. That's why I can preach compassion for all creatures while still eating meat, and believe me, I eat a lot of it. It's why I still buy most everything from Amazon in spite of reports of predatory business practices. It's why I can express concern for the poor while buying clothes that were made in a sweatshop. It's why we sometimes vote with our wallets instead of our conscience. To wit, last year there was a referendum in Wheaton for the local school district, an effort to raise money for new facilities. Now having children in District 200 myself, I voted in favor of it, and the referendum passed. But then the tax bill came due. Now I have to say, when I realized how much more I was paying in property taxes, I experienced a few feelings. First, I felt a little ill. And then I began to wonder if I'd made the right decision. I did, I think. I still believe that this was a, a good investment in future generations and a good investment in education. But friends, I have to wonder If I had known, if I had been paying attention, if I could have predicted how much it would cost me, 
would I still have voted for it? If I didn't have any children, would I still have voted for it? And I have to say, friends, that I really don't know. We have a tendency sometimes to compartmentalize our convictions, to put them in separate boxes, isolate them, don't let them talk to each other. In his seminal work, The Nazi Doctors, Medical Killing and the Psychology of Genocide, Robert Lifton struggles to comprehend how men who took the Hippocratic Oath could conduct cruel medical experiments on Jewish prisoners. And in that book, he writes this, the key to understanding how Nazi doctors came to do the work of Auschwitz is the psychological principle I call doubling, the division of the self into two functioning wholes so that a part self acts as an entire self. Now that's a dark example, an extreme example, but we all compartmentalize our values to some extent. That's why I tend to be kind of cheap, frankly, in spite of my belief in Christian generosity. But as Jesus once said, a person cannot serve two masters. And that is where adversarial interoperability comes into play. Many of the systems that govern this world, political, financial, technological, they don't particularly want to be influenced by Jesus' teachings. They don't want to interface with them. They don't want us to plug in our Christian values. But as Christians living in the world, we have to find a way to bring all of our values together in a consistent way. We have to find a way to plug our Christian convictions into everything else we believe and everything else we do. Now, sometimes that might feel like trying to plug a coffee maker into a Chevy, but we have to make it work. We can't just be Christians at church, but also at, at work and at school and at the shopping mall and at home. We have to be Christians when we read the newspaper, when we post things on social media, and when we balance our budgets. We have to be confident and bold, but also consistent in our convictions, because we have a responsibility to pass those values onto the next generation before we're gone. It's true, my kids haven't got much to rifle through when it comes to my old things. I've got a box of old books, a few DVDs, and a handful of CDs that the record shop wouldn't buy because my taste in music is really that bad. All of my music, all of my correspondence, even my family photographs, they're all online, locked behind a username and a password, and one day they'll probably all be lost, sitting on a server somewhere that no one can access. But I hope I can leave my kids something else, something that can never be locked behind a password or a paywall. I hope I can leave them with my beliefs and my convictions and my values rooted in Christ's teachings, rooted in the gospel. I hope I can find the wisdom and the strength to model that integrity for them. I hope I can teach them to integrate those values into their lives, to plug them into everything they do and everything they are. Amen.